The Jewish views on Donald Trump in Israel next week. We speak to our American correspondent, Dr. Lenny Crystal. The Holocaust Art Exhibition at New North London Synagogue. We meet artist Tracy Conway there. And Speaker's Corner series of talks. Zoe Chargett enlightens us on these very popular events. But first, with a roundup of the Jewish news this week, I'm Vivian Krieger. Security chiefs have defended President Donald Trump after he gave intelligence supplied by Israel about an Islamic State plot to officials in Russia. Trump's administration played down the importance and secrecy of the information, whilst the president himself said he had an absolute right to share facts pertaining to terrorism and airline safety with the Russians. Israel is a crucial source of intelligence and helps the US hugely in its fight against some of its fiercest threats in the Middle East. Israel's ambassador to the US said the relationship was solid, but nevertheless some believe it could make Trump's visit to Israel next week a difficult diplomatic test. The Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has said the global cyber attack, which encrypted files and then demanded a ransom, has caused only minor damage to the country so far. It's emerged that an Israeli cybersecurity firm was one of the first to spot the attack known as WannaCry. Mr Netanyahu said the threat had been foreseen, which justified the setting up some years ago of the National Cyber Event Readiness Team. One of Osama bin Laden's sons has released a video calling on Muslims and followers of al-Qaeda in the West and in occupied Palestine to carry out attacks on Jewish targets around the world. Hamza bin Laden urges such action in the video, which includes clips of terrorist attacks that have been perpetrated worldwide, including in Israel. And finally, candidates taking part in BBC One's The Apprentice were spotted going shopping for Lord Sugar at Grzynski's in Stamford Hill. A camera crew was seen filming four of these smartly dressed contestants as they negotiated with the manager, Volvi Cooperstein, at the Kosher Bakery. It would seem to confirm that a new series is on the way. That's the news. Sport coming up. Over to Andrew. Thank you, Viv. The last game of the Jewish football season will see North London Raiders win the final piece of silverware when their Masters side take on their men's C team in the final of the Invitational Trophy. Elsewhere, faithful B midfielder Avi Garson has been named the MGBSFL Young Player of the Year. Admitting his shock at winning the award, the 22-year-old said, I had no idea that I was going to win it. It took me completely by surprise. And finally, Tony Milch is getting set for his first fight of the year. Returning to the ring on the 27th of May and looking for a 13th consecutive professional win, he said, It's my first fight since my big November knockout win. I've been waiting for this fight for a long time. You can catch up on all the latest Jewish sport at jewishnews.co.uk. Thank you, Andrew. Hello, and welcome to this edition of The Jewish Views. I'm Clive Roslin. Let's start off, as we always do, with a look through your copy of The Jewish News for this week. Andrew's staying here, of course, because he's the community and sports editor. We're joined also now by Justin Cohen, who's the news editor. And the front page, the headline is fascinating, this. School refuses pupil time off for bat mitzvah. 
Yeah, absolutely. This is a schoolgirl in Norwich who uh, whose parents asked for her to have the day off before her bat mitzvah in order to prepare and spend time with family and so on. This has caused a massive debate, I have to say, within our office and and it sounds like from the Jewish Views team outside our office as well. The school, as I said, refused her to have that time off. But in my opinion, this is an important religious landmark and she's asking for one day before that to prepare. I, I don't think that was an unreasonable request. I think the school are quite wrong on this one. I think I agree with you, actually, because, I mean, for goodness sake, she, it's only one day, isn't it? Absolutely. I don't think that's unreasonable. Andrew, what do you think? I agree with you, Clive. It's a day before the big event as well. I don't think it's unreasonable for her parents to actually ask the school for her to take just that one day off. So if she does take the day off, is she going to get into terrible trouble or the parents going to be fined for not the daughter not coming to school? The event's now happened, actually, so the, ah. it's, it's a done deal. She didn't get the time off. And she went to school? I believe so, yes. I think that's extremely unfair. I really do. As you say in the paper, parents say harsh decision sends a negative message. Oh, well, there's nothing much more one could say about that, is there? But what about the... You're full of political news, obviously, with the election coming. You're talking about the new manifestos, and you say that Labour's manifesto softens Labour's Israel stance, and you're talking about MPs' clash at the hustings. What's all that about? Yeah, as you say, this has been the week where we've seen the release now of all three main party manifestos. We probably focus particularly on the Labour manifesto out the end of last week because the original draft that was leaked to the media, I think, last Wednesday night, suggested that it was very much going to take a pro-Palestinian narrative stance when it came to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. After that actually came out, a lot of work was done behind the scenes. I know the Jewish Labour movement wrote to all the members of the of, of the Clause 5 committee, as it's called, the people that make the final decision on the manifesto. And possibly as a result of that, possibly as a result of pressure from other members of the Shadow Cabinet, I think Tom Watson was involved in this. I think Emily Thornbury also was quite taken aback by the original leak. And the result actually is a far more balanced perspective that came out in the official manifesto on Monday, talking, in, for example, about committing once again to a two-state solution, but also talking about the need for an end to Palestinian rocket attacks, to terror attacks on, on Israel, as well as a, an end to settlement building. So a far more balanced approach than was originally the case. But do you think this is really going to make Jews vote for Labour? There's still a sort of strong feeling against it, isn't yeah, there? Yeah, I, I don't think the, the release of one manifesto is going to make a whole lot of difference in this election. I, I think it was important for the Labour Party to take a, a more balanced approach, to recognise the mistakes of that original leak, the fact that it was imbalanced. But I, I think clearly they've listened to that, but it's not going to make a whole lot of difference. You'd imagine the vast majority of, of readers that unfortunately have been battered over the last year or year and a bit with stories about anti Semitism and anti-Israel bias. It's not going to make a difference to that, no. Well, the manifesto, all right, softens Labour's Israel's stance. But then on the next page, you're saying MPs clash at hustings. What's that about? Yeah, this was the big community hustings that took place with the Board of Deputies in uh, organising it uh, last weekend. They had a very impressive lineup, has to be said, uh, with Keir Starmer representing the Labour Party, the Shadow Brexit Secretary, and Sajid Javid, the Community Secretary, in for the Conservatives. Also, the Lib Dems and the SNP, for the first time, were represented. The main points of, uh, of conflict, I would say, between Labour and the Conservatives were over the point of boycotts and 
and Sajid Javid made it very clear his belief that the Labour Party would boycott Israel, which uh, Keir Starmer took great exception to. He said that that's not the party position and that's not official party policy. And also over the issue of refugees and the Dubs Amendment, of course, which is an issue which the Jewish community has been concerned about in terms of what the government has done. Famously, the, the suggestion was that 3,000 unaccompanied children would be accepted from Europe under the Dubs scheme, uh, named after Alf Dubs, who of course came on the kinder transport. That didn't happen. Less than, I think, 400 or thereabouts children were in the end came under that scheme. And it has to be said, Keir Starmer, I would say, landed a few blows on Sajid Javid over this and, and said that Sajid Javid's position in not saying that more children should be let in, that 3,000 children should be let in, was disgraceful in itself. So a feisty encounter, that one. Sounds very feisty indeed. Andrew, have you got anything else you'd like to bring up from this latest paper edition? Yes, we have a story regarding an anti-Semitic attack that happened at Cambridge College where the master of which has now come out to apologise for the incident and how it was investigated. The incident goes back to last August when two students reported suffering anti-Semitic abuse at a college party. So the college launched an investigation, but they failed to find anyone behind it. But they did actually discipline two students for the swearing. Obviously, the complainants weren't happy with that. Another investigation was then looked into as a result of meetings held by representatives of the Board of Deputies, the CST and the Jewish Leadership Council. And as a result of that, the master of the Cambridge College has now come out and he's apologised and admitted the inquiry was inadequately handled. That's fascinating because... You wouldn't have thought that sort of thing happened in, in universities like Cambridge and, and Oxford as well. You'd like to think, obviously, unions like Cambridge and Oxford have this kind of association that you know they're prim and proper, this doesn't happen. But we know as a fact of the Jewish news that incidents do happen on campus. And this story has actually highlighted it happening on a Cambridge college. And there's another of the, your stories has caught my eye. The headline says, 20,000 cheer Rebbe's visit. That's right. Yes, it's not often you would see a story, I have to say, about a Rebbe's visit uh, in the pages of the Jewish News. We don't imagine that's where the bulk of our of our readership comes from, the strictly orthodox community. However, this was something that really grabbed our attention and, and the pictures that uh, our readers hopefully will see when they do pick up the paper this week are quite spectacular. It has to be said, 20,000 people. In my estimation, that makes that one of the largest gatherings of jury in this country for many, many years. And they were all there to cheer, as you say, the visit of the uh, of the Belzer Rebbe. First time that he's visited in more than two decades, apparently. The story also got some attention in the Nationals, not for particularly positive reasons. And, and we've highlighted the positive here and the fact that the Rebbe was here to open up a new educational centre within Stamford Hill. But for another reason, this grabbed some attention in the Nationals, and that was because of a clash outside the venue between uh, people from the Satmar and the Tory Carter group. A bit of an unsavoury uh, element. There's a picture of, of a policeman getting hold of a Haredi gentleman. Yes, there is. I think this was actually involved members of the Satmar and Tory Carter groups on one side and members of the Bells community on another. And I can't say I'm an expert on the uh, intricacies of, of the uh, Haredi community, but I know that there are points of conflict between the two. And finally, I, I've noticed something else. We're going back to the politics. You interviewed the shadow or ex-shadow Home Secretary Yvette Cooper. 
That's right, Mrs. Ed Balls, who um, was at the launch of the campaign for Mike Katz, the Labour candidate in Hendon, of course, the vice chair of the Jewish Labour movement, someone whose candidacy in itself has been a great talking point for standing under the Labour banner and standing against a friend of the community in this election. Yvette Cooper, as I said, was there to support uh, his candidacy and also the other Barnet candidates, including Jeremy Newmark, who was also there at the launch. Uh, it was very interesting, actually, because we've heard a lot in recent days about why Jewish people shouldn't vote for the Labour Party under the current climate. We've heard about why Jewish candidates certainly shouldn't stand against friends of the community and the Conservative Party again at this time. Yvette Cooper is actually making the case that these people being elected and being members of Parliament, both Mike Katz and Jeremy Newmark in particular, would actually boost the fight against anti-Semitism within the Labour Party. So it wouldn't just have a neutral impact, but would actually boost that fight. And so I think that's a very interesting perspective. And it was very interesting to speak to her. There's obviously speculation at the moment that should Jeremy Corbyn lose the next election, that Yvette Cooper's name could well be in the hat for a future leadership bid. So uh, interesting times. That's where we'll have to leave it for this week. But thank you both very much indeed. And don't forget, you can pick up your copy of the Jewish News every Thursday across London or read the e-version at jewishnews.co.uk. But first, we hear that Donald Trump has disclosed Israeli intelligence on ISIS to Russia. The highly classified information about an ISIS state plot was collected by Israel. This was staunchly defended by White House officials. I've been speaking to Dr. Lenny Crystal, chairman of the Bay Area Jewish Community Relations Council in California, and I started by asking him, how serious is this? The media are reporting and have reported extensively that Trump shared classified information with the Russians. But of course, the only people in the room at that time were Rex Tillerson, the Foreign Secretary, Dina Powell, Security, and McMaster, who actually then came out, and he's a very credible figure, McMaster, and he said categorically that Trump did not share classified information and refuted that on the afternoon that that story came out, and then subsequently the following morning at a press conference. So the people who leaked the information to the Washington Post were not present in the room, and they were actually then talking about it third hand. So you've got a he said, he said situation. And of course, we don't know what the truth of the matter is. But clearly, if he did leak classified information, of course, which they, Trump and his people deny, he obviously did so, if he did so, in a way that McMaster claimed was public knowledge anyway, that there is a bomb plot that's hatching and that it's going to be in a computer. And um, we don't know the details, but one can guess what tends to follow. And uh, people were claiming that, of course, Trump named the city. And that way they could actually identify an Israeli spy who'd given the information across and therefore put that spy's life in danger. Now, what McMaster did say in a press conference, and again, I remind you that he is well regarded on both sides of the house, He said that Trump didn't even know where this information came from or he didn't know what the city was. And that's nothing unusual because presidents tend to get select information in terms of, you know, intelligence briefings. So 
The premise that he leaked classified information is questionable and it's being denied at the source. The Israelis have not commented publicly other than to say that they will continue to work closely with the Americans in terms of security and intelligence matters. And of course, that goes without saying. Whether in fact someone's life was put in danger and um, a credible Israeli source, a very reliable Israeli source, planted in the heart of ISIS was exposed will obviously remain to be seen and history will be the judge of that. It could be serious and, you know, one shouldn't underestimate the, the seriousness of that remark because the Russians clearly will go back to Iran, will go back to Syria with that information and that does change a certain dynamic. So that's really where that stands at the moment. So you're saying that perhaps he, he's not in as dangerous a position as might from the stories that one reads over here as we think. Well, Clive, I don't know what position, I presume you're talking about the spy, and heaven knows uh, what happened, and hopefully, if he was an Israeli spy, he was got out the uh, area as quickly as possible, and we haven't really had much follow-up to that story, so I can't comment. There's another story as well, which is equally interesting, and that is that an Israeli campaign has urged separation with Palestinians ahead of the Trump visit. Mm -hmm. What about that? Well, I think that's an interesting development. It's a minority view in Israel at the moment, but I think the whole concept of a two-state solution, which we all think is the way, well, sorry, I think is the way to go, is becoming less viable. Unless, of course, Trump changes the game on his upcoming trip to the Middle East next week. And there's speculative rumor that he's got something in his bag of tricks that's going to help the Palestinians come back to the table without preconditions and that there's something cooking between Saudi Arabia and the Gulf states who might be prepared to work more closely with Israel and overtly so. But that said, the whole concept of a two-state solution is under serious investigation now by the Israeli public and some Israeli lawmakers. And it's clearly a movement that is based in the feeling that not so much that the entire West Bank or Judea and Samaria is Israeli anyway, but more to do with security matters where the situation now has become so fraught around Israel in terms of enemies wishing to destroy her that by ceding territory to the Palestinians, there's no surety or guarantee that any successive leaders of the Palestinian movement won't use whatever is ceded to attack Israel, which has always been the problem from a security point of view. So divorcing is one such argument. It's not a predominant argument, but who knows where this can go. And much of it, its evolution will depend on matters on the ground. So the fact that this campaign has actually said, and I quote, <coughs> Trump has reawakened the political discourse and the hope that Israel will re-enter negotiations in order to achieve a deal, you think is still pretty much a dream? I'm not really saying that. I do think that, if anything, the time is right now to try and create momentum with the new administration. And it just depends really on what goes on behind the scenes that I think very few of us are privy to. I've always maintained that what we read in the press, what we hear in the media, 
really has very little to do with reality because so much goes on under the table, so to speak, in order to craft and create new circumstances that we simply aren't aware of. So his arrival in the area heralds an opportunity, no question. But of course, he himself is now under the most tremendous cloud. I'm sure you heard the recent news about a special counsel being appointed to investigate him and whether he has connections or had connections to the Russians and whether his campaign had connections to the Russians. And I think this is actually a bit of a a millstone around his neck as he begins his travels, because clearly one doesn't know now where this is all going to lead. So you have to be a little circumspect in terms of what he thinks he can deliver, whether indeed down the line he'll be able to deliver at all because of his own circumstance back home. Do you think it will ever reach the case that it did with Nixon, that he's going to have to give it all up? I mean, this is, I know, only conjecture, but it's an interesting conjecture. It is an interesting conjecture. It depends on picking your poison. What do I mean by that? Well, essentially, America at the moment is two different countries. You've got the West Coast and the East Coast and the urban big cities where the liberal Democrats are still incensed that he won the election, can't seem to put it behind them. But at the same time, he has managed to galvanize their base in a way that's really created a lot of protests throughout this country. They see impeachment written with a large capital I as a very real and definite prospect. On the other hand, the core Trump supporters haven't left him. And people who see this being a witch hunt, deep state getting involved to try and destroy him, the Obama holdovers in in the current administration, in the State Department, in the civil service, etc., are uh, secretly trying to undermine him. They are now beginning to get galvanized, particularly in light of recent developments. So you've got two very different views of what the outcome is likely to be. One of the interesting points, which has got more to do with law than anything else, is that you can't actually impeach a sitting president. I wasn't aware of this until recently. I think apparently the Justice Department in the United States passed a ruling, I think it was back in about 1973, where a sitting president is immune from prosecution. And this was reaffirmed in 2000. And so what that really means is if push comes to shove, he can't necessarily be impeached under legal pretenses. However, what can happen is politically, the House and the Senate can decide to impeach him if that's what they wish to do. But the real likelihood of that happening is quite remote because the Republicans control the House by quite a significant number of seats and they control the Senate, 52 to 46. So what you will find is that unless Trump really has stepped in it in a very major way, which damages the Republicans' prospects in the year 2018 in the midterm elections and ultimately perhaps the presidential campaign of 2020, it's very unlikely that they're going to wish to try and impeach Trump. More than that, if there is a movement to do so, Well, there'll certainly be a civil war in the Republican Party, which is all over the map anyway, because uh, people who elected him, elected him to drain the swamp and to get in there and uh, to make dramatic change in terms of the economy of the country and so on. And they will feel that they're being stabbed not only in the back, but right through the heart from the front as well, 
if the Republicans try to impeach. That's uh, really fascinating, and we shall just have to wait and see. But thank you, Lenny, very much indeed. My pleasure, as always, Clive. Always lovely talking to you. Thank you. Dr. Lenny Crystal, chairman of the Bay Area Jewish Community Relations Council in California, speaking to me from there. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with The Jewish News. And still to come on in this edition is our Jewish Schmooze. Today, Adam and I will be joined by journalist and author Jeremy Havadi and the voice Jeremy Jacobs. We'll be discussing the story we heard earlier about the son of Osama bin Laden calling for attacks on Jewish targets. Plus, Diana Toman will be speaking to artist Tracy Conway about her art exhibition on the Holocaust. But first, Jewish Care have been hosting a series of talks called Speaker's Corner. Zoe Charjet from Jewish Care's Sobel Centre has been speaking to our arts editor, Kate Fulton, and tells us about these very popular events. Kate started by asking Zoe what the community programme is. The community programme is one of the sides that Michael Sobel offers, and it is a whole mixture of classes, courses, events, support groups for the entire community. We've got dance classes for six-year-olds through to social events for people 45 to 60, right up until afternoon teas for people in their 80s. So when you say the entire community, this is the Jewish community, whoever happens to access it, find out about it by uh, looking at the programme. Absolutely. And any age. Any age. And I was looking at some of the programmes. It's a fabulous... This is your summer programme now, yes. isn't it? Yes, it is. And the, the, the... So tell me a bit about things like the health and well-being and the social. Who comes and what sort of things are you doing? The majority of activities in the programme appeal to people probably 50 plus. But it's really open to anyone. So we try and look at various sections of Jewish life and cater for those elements. So the health and well-being, we've got a range of exercise classes. Some are for children, some are ladies only, some are for men, some are mixed gender classes. So hopefully we cover our bases and there's something for everyone. But we've got Slimming World as well that sit within the building. So it's just giving people choice that if they want to perhaps improve their health, if they're looking to change their nutrition, then we're somewhere they can go to get advice. Equally, being social is a large part of remaining healthy and active and participating in your community. So With our social events, we've got a mix and mingle, also Bellas, which are social evenings for single people. But it doesn't necessarily have to be a romantic relationship that you're looking to embark upon. It's also about friendship. And then we've got the adult learning, which is, you know, as Jewish people, we're very passionate and interested and seek to understand more. So the learning programme does just that. It touches on various different topics where we can hopefully educate the community and look at things from different points of view. Are you helping to put this programme together? Yes. Yeah. How do you decide what's going to go in the programme this, this season? Well, we're in a unique position in that there are three generations that access Michael Sobel and they are coming in and out of the doors all the time. And we really encourage feedback. It's a community programme in every sense. So we will always ask people how they find the programme, whether there's something 
that we're not running that they'd like to see and we monitor the levels of interest and I think just now we've we've got a really nice balance of feedback so that it suits the whole community. Do you theme them? Are there sort of specific themes for the summer this this year or anything? So the only activities that we theme are the talks. And this summer we focused on Jewish roots. So we've got a genealogist coming in to speak, then a historian and then the Jewish Museum. So hopefully you've got a really well-rounded programme that will lead on well from each other. Right, and talking of these Speakers' Corner events that I think they're called, are these for, again, for anybody? And is there some audience participation? They are absolutely for anybody. Everybody is welcome. There's audience participation in so much as... The reason why we don't call them lectures is because people think they're sitting and being spoken at. Michael Sobel is actually, anyone who comes in the building feels that it's a really warm, comfortable, inviting atmosphere. So the general format is that it's a 45-minute talk with 15 minutes at the end for question and answer. But actually, if a speaker's in the middle of explaining something and you're not quite sure or you want to add a point or you have a question quite often people will raise their hand and it becomes that interaction and that's the whole point is that the sessions are engaging and they're interactive and everyone goes away feeling that they've learned something but also that they've been able to participate and the one about the genealogy someone was mentioning about writing their own life story yes. would you come along if you were interested if any of our listeners want to write their life story Absolutely. Would you recommend coming? Absolutely. And tell me that about that speaker. Yes. So if you like the show, Who Do You Think You Are, which I know has been hugely successful and actually has a bit of a cult following now, then this is the series for you because it looks at genealogy at its most basic level. And I think as Jews, it plays a really big part. You know, we're from all over. There is so much immigration and emigration on the move when it comes to our Jewish history that it's fascinating. Jeanette Rosenberg is the first speaker who will talk about genealogy, sharing insights, stories that she's come across along the way, the role that genealogy plays sitting alongside history. And then you've got David Cohen, who is an oral historian and documentarian. So following that, he will start to tell you about the benefits of recording your own life story. A lot of incredible stories and information on on history and our past have come from people documenting their stories. And presumably in our community, we must have a number of people who have particularly difficult, interesting stories that, that would be like would like to be shared absolutely so he will give a lot of really sound advice in terms of why it's important but also the how to similarly with Jeanette if you are looking to start tracing your own family history she has an absolute wealth of knowledge so throughout the talk she will give you advice and places to go to find out more information And then we got a a different type of history through the the Jewish Museum. Is there a specific exhibition that's being referred to here? Yeah, I'm really, really excited about this talk because the Jewish Museum do not historically go out into the community and talk as part of a sort of an outreach programme. Otherwise, 
there wouldn't necessarily be an incentive for people to go to the museum. Um, but Jewish Care have got a very special relationship with the museum and they're actually coming along and it's an exhibition that exists in the museum but they're bringing out into the community where they talk about the history of British Jews using objects so they're actually bringing objects from the museum that the audience can handle so it's again that very tactile interaction yeah and I think there's a book isn't there a thousand time through a thousand objects or something there's something something quite similar and and they actually they have an outreach program which is dementia friendly where they go into residential homes and they run workshops with people so the work that they do within the community is fantastic and we're really excited to to partner with them what sort of cost are these to people going? Or do you have to join? Do you have to become a member of Jewish Care? How does that no, work? No, the, the beauty of everything in the community programme pretty much is that you don't have to become a member. So if there's something in there that you like the look of, you come along as you would going to the cinema or booking a theatre. Do, do you need to pre-book? Most of the events is very helpful if you pre For you, for numbers. For us. It gives us an idea if we're catering for numbers um, and layouts. Catering? And- Yes, yes. So if you're coming to our function without absolutely, it would be an absolute nightmare if you came along and we ran out of food. I don't think I'd sleep for a week. So it's very, very helpful for people to phone up and book. And also it means we've got your contact details. So if for any reason a speaker has to cancel due to them being unwell, we can contact you and you haven't had a wasted trip. So it, Lovely. it helps. But in case anybody doesn't know where the Sobel Centre is, can you tell us that and the cost, just so they know what to bring with them? Yes, so it's £6 per talk if we're talking about the lectures the talks that we run it's six pounds to come along if you don't book in advance it's eight pounds on the door so in that instance it's really useful to phone and tell us that you're coming and we are at 221 golders green road so we're the ground floor of the big jewish care building which is opposite kosher kingdom and next to grudzinski's Zoe Chargett from jewish care's sobel center speaking to art editor kate fulton there In just a moment will be this week's Schmooze. Remember, we live stream the Schmooze on our Facebook page every Thursday evening from 7pm BST. The address is coming up, but that means you can comment along as the discussion unfolds and we'll try and read some of those comments out. It's just one of a number of ways you can share your Jewish views with us. Speaking of which... If you'd like to get involved, we'd love to hear your Jewish views. You can email studio at jewishviews.co.uk or you can contact us via social media. Find us on Facebook by going to facebook.com slash jewishviews or on Twitter, we are at jewishviewsuk. And of course, those details can be found on our website, jewishviews.co.uk. Now, artist Tracy Conway is exhibiting her work on the Shoah at the New North London Synagogue, and community editor Diana Toman visited the exhibition and has been speaking to her there. She started by asking Tracy to tell us a bit about herself and what inspired her to put on the exhibition. I went on a trip to Berlin specifically to see all the memorials to the adults and children that had perished in the Holocaust 
And I was staying in an apartment and every time we sat on the balcony, little sparrows would come and sit with us, very tame, very little skinny sparrows, not the chubby ones that you get in London. And wherever we went and sat down, there would always be sparrows. And we saw a very beautiful memorial to some children that had perished. And I suddenly just made the link between the sparrows and the children and thought, wouldn't it be nice to create a piece of artwork using the theory of reincarnation and that perhaps the souls of all the children that had been murdered had been reincarnated into the sparrows and that's why they were so friendly. Was this quite recently? The exhibition itself has taken me over two years to put together, so it was about three years ago. And are you an artist by profession? I wish I was. No, I've got a um, a full-time job in education working with special needs children who are in mainstream and I tend to support very low ability children. But it's a passion and I really enjoy it and perhaps that's why I've taken the angle of children that died in the Holocaust as opposed to the generic people. It's a huge subject and it's been very well covered, hasn't it, by all sorts of media. It certainly has and I think even as an adult I find it very hard to process what has actually happened. You see the pictures, you see the documentaries, the films, you know it's happened but the depravity of humanity is truly shocking. And this exhibition was a way for me to try and process something. I don't know whether it's helped, but it seems to have the right effect on the people that see it. Has it helped you? Possibly, yes. I'm far calmer. (laughs) It's been a labour of love. Very hard, very intricate work, but one that I've really enjoyed. Why don't we go and have a look at your favourite pieces? Tracy, why don't you describe what we're looking at? Well, first, I think it'll be easier to describe it. The intention I wanted for this was the image of a paper chain of children. When we're children, we cut out little boys and girls and we decorate them. And I thought, in a way, this is how the children almost died, that there was just this continuous conveyor belt of murder. And that my first image was one of boys and girls just joined together. And I decided to concentrate on the boy and the girl. And it was the last piece I painted for this exhibition. But I have to say, I think it's the most dramatic because the eyes of the children just seem to follow you. And they only have eyes. There's no mouth, no nose. And I think in its simplicity, it's very dramatic. Perhaps I should just describe it. We've got a half figure on the left, which is the little girl in a brown dress and then in the middle of the painting is a little boy and these little stick figures if you can call it sort of reminiscent of Lowry perhaps have got very prominent yellow stars attached to their chests and at the bottom of the painting is a little frieze what's it made of? It's made of gold it's used for gilding like gold leaf gold leaf that's it yes and as you can see originally it was put on very thickly so as you walked past it would shimmer so it would give the illusion of flames but understandably being in a an environment where children come and go and there's a lot of footfall there isn't as much on there that was originally 
but I think it still looks like flames. Do you mean we've had a few light fingers around here? I think they've just been touching. It looks very tactile. Tracy and I are now standing in front of two or three exhibits and I'm going to ask her to explain two of them. The first picture is one of burnt pages of a book. I sourced the book from Eastern Europe. It is from the 1930s. When I looked through the book, there were pictures of Hitler and Goebbels in the book. But it was a book on tourism in Berlin. It was, I can't read German, I wanted it for the typography. But it didn't seem, in my very basic German, it didn't seem anything untoward. Anyway, I went about burning the pages. I am the kind of person who, I've read a book and it looks doesn't look read. So for me to burn the pages, it was a very dramatic thing. And I literally dropped the pages onto a canvas covered with glue. And as they fell, stuck them down. And I think it, it's to represent Kristallnacht. The pages are curling at the edges and scorched all over and stuck to a board. It's very dramatic and rather chilling, actually. Describe to me the one that's on its left. The one on the left is a triangular canvas. In the centre of the triangle is a pyre, again made with gold leaf, resembling a fire, with three little birds flying away. And on one side of the triangle is the famous Nietzsche quote, how could you rise anew if you have not first become ashes? And I think it's self-explanatory. It talks for itself in its simplicity. In front of us, we've got a table with more artefacts. Explain these to me. There are three little suitcases. As you can see through the work, suitcases are another theme. Every person that arrived at a camp usually had their own suitcase. These, again, are covered in burnt pages of the same book of the previous picture we spoke of but this time out of the cases are flying more sparrows so it's freedom are these sparrows that we can hear in the background i'd like to think so and what else is on this table one of the things on the table is a tiny little they're called zigzag books and this tiny book is the first book i made which started the whole exhibition off and i like the idea of it representing something that somebody might have made and buried, explaining the story. Just very, very simple black and white pictures, which really tell in a very basic way the theme of the exhibition. Tracy and I are now looking at three white, they look like picture frames, about eight inches square with glass in front of them and inside each are tiny little figures made of what, Tracy? They're plastic. So everything is white, white plastic as a background, white plastic as the figures, but on the left-hand side of each of these three frames is a strip of black paint. And Tracy tells me that represents the void as it might appear to the figures walking towards it. In the left-hand frame are five little figures which represent children. In the middle frame are five little tiny little figures which represent babies. And in the right-hand frame are five little pairs of white shoes, tiny 
white shoes, and each of them are facing towards this black void. You're listening to The Jewish Views, and this is The Jewish Moves, the part of the show where studio guests join me, Clive Roslin, to discuss matters that you've been hearing throughout the programme so far. And joining Adam and me today are the two Jeremys, journalist and author Jeremy Havadi and The Voice, Jeremy Jacobs. The subject today is based on the story you heard in the news earlier. Osama bin Laden's son has called for attacks on Jewish targets and has released a video calling for punishment on Jews and crusaders around the world. He urges Muslims and followers of Al-Qaeda to carry out attacks worldwide. Jeremy, let's stop with you. Jeremy Havadi, I should say. Let's stop with you. Well, it's horrifying, but it's not, it shouldn't in any way be surprising. I remember writing in the book that I wrote on the anti-Israel narrative that there's a common belief that what Islamists, among them bin Laden, what they really hate is the things that the West does to them. And in actual fact, there is an ideology that unites radical Islamists and radical Muslims. And a lot of that ideology centers around their hatred of Jews. And they hate Israel, undoubtedly. They hate Zionism. But what underlies that is a hatred of Jews. And not just Jews, but Jews and Christians. Why? Because ultimately they reject everything that Islamists believe in. And not only that, they also, of course, hate moderate Muslims. So we shouldn't be surprised when bin Laden's son and others like him are quite open and honest about their hatred of Jews and when they call for attacks on Jews and others around the world. This is part of their ideology. It's part of what makes them tick. It can shock us when they're this brazen, but I don't think it should surprise us at all. What about the other Jeremy? Do you agree? Well, I can only add to what uh, Jeremy number one has said which is, in our books, in, in every generation, there's been those who want to destroy us. It's interesting that he, that he used the word crusader rather than Christian today, which I thought was rather interesting. But again, there shouldn't be a surprise to anybody in the Jewish community on a worldwide basis. The question is, well, how do we respond to it? Well, that's the point. How do we respond to it? Because it could be extremely dangerous, couldn't it? Mm, of course it could. Well, you can go nuclear, can't you? I don't mean literally, but yes, you just kill these people when, you, when the opportunity uh, arises, as the West have done with certain uh, ISIS leaders. But I don't know whether that, uh, whether that will make things worse. I find it interesting that they are so opposed to, as you said, the Crusaders. Mm. What I find ironic about that is that the Christian Crusaders were in the 1400s, 1400 years into their into their religion, and they were at the stage where they were out crusading, trying to convert or die. Now, Islam is about 1400 years old now. Started in about I don't know seven eight hundred something. Like that. It's, it's a similar age, might be a bit younger, but mm. I've always thought that radical Islam at the moment is going through their crusades. Exactly, and I think yeah. it's bizarre that they're actually. What they're against is exactly what I see them doing. But bear in mind, however, that the Crusades were, and it's important to remember this, a defensive measure against the expansion of the Islamic Empire across Europe. I mean, not that I'm wishing to defend uh, Christianity in the 12th and 13th centuries, not at all. In many ways, it was actually very intolerant, just like radical Islam today. But the Crusades were actually very much a defensive measure designed to actually win back lands that had been taken by an ever-expanding Islamic Empire. And the point about the Crusades, the reason why they talk about the Crusades now is because 
for the radical Islamists, their memory, if you like, is incredibly long. They don't look at the world in terms of the last 10 or 20 years. They think that what they're seeing in the world today is just an update of what they were seeing seven or eight centuries ago, namely a, a world battle, a global cosmic battle between the forces of good and evil, between the forces of Islam, which they see as on the right, and the forces of non-Islam, which they see as being in the wrong. And they believe that this this battle that's been going on for so many centuries is just being updated in every generation. And what they're seeing today is just another version of it. It's just that the, as it were, the Crusaders today are the, the Jews and Christians. But one could add, of course, anybody that just doesn't agree with them. And they believe that this battle is a very long, long-term battle. If they lose in one year or another, it doesn't matter because ultimately they'll, they'll fight it another day. That's all very interesting and it's all absolutely true. But it's also interesting to note that Muhammad, who started the Muslim religion actually first went to a Jew because he was fascinated by Judaism and he wanted to become a Jew and the Jews said to him, no, don't, don't, go away. And so he started his religion based on the Jewish religion. And if you look at Islam as it was meant to be, it has a great deal in common with Judaism. Hmm. But Luther also, by the way, wanted the Hechsher, as we call it. They wanted, they wanted the Jewish seal of approval. You know, we said no to Luther. We wanted to keep our own religion. We said no to Muhammad. Ultimately, there's something fascinating about the fact that they did come to the Jews who created the, the oldest monotheistic religion. But, you know, we wanted to stay as, as we were. And an intolerant reaction happened afterwards. Hmm. All, right, all this is very interesting, but is there a fact that Osama bin Laden might cause a great deal of unpleasantness? Yeah, in the I mean, yeah, I mean look, I, I, I'm going to go back to the old football adage is to score your equalising goal before the other team does. And I think that there, are, there may be a case for military intervention. I'm not saying in this particular case, but what else can you do? There's like terrorist things going off in Europe and now, and now the United States on now a regular basis. How much longer are we going to put up with this? But how and where? Well, I, I, what, I don't know. What, what, what? You either t- you take him out as we, t- as, we t- as we took out his father. But his father was very different people in... Oh, same message, surely. No, what I was going to say is there are different, very different people running America now from the people oh. running America when uh, Osama bin Laden, the father, was good. I, I'm not so sure. I'm not so sure about that. The, the US agenda is still pretty much the same. I think you're probably right, Jeremy. I think mm. as much as things have changed in America, I think the people running the country behind the scenes are still the same people that have been for decades. Mm which does sort of suggest that they might want to take the same course of action. So none of you think that we're getting nearer and nearer to some sort of terrible war between Islam and... Well, my concern at the moment is not just al-Qaeda, but the fact that ISIS is shrinking somewhat, and it's... I think it's looking like the two are going to join up soon enough and create this sort of one uber terrorist organization kind of thing and i think that is a real opponent to concern ourselves about yes it is and nothing appears to be doing one of the reasons why i'm reasonably pleased without making a political point this country is exiting the european union i think there are all sorts of issues and that the liberal immigration policies might might come back to bite us in the bum excuse my french in, in years to come as what's happening in sweden now and that is a should be a real concern to us I mean, to answer your question directly and following on, there'll never be a war between Islam and the rest, mm-hmm. simply because, A, it's impossible to conceive of how that would happen. But secondly, mm. you've got to remember that the jihadists, the radical Islamists, mm. believe that moderate Muslims are the enemy as well. 
Mm. And in fact, ma the majority of their victims are Muslim. If you look at the civil sure. wars in, in North Africa. Therefore, what we have to do is we have to conceive of a situation where we have moderate Muslim allies in countries in the Middle East and outside who are waging the same battle as us on various levels, whether it's military or financial or ideological, against the common enemy. The common enemy is jihadism or the jihadists. And how do you tackle it? Well, on multiple levels. I mean, you know, you're going to tackle a problem like this, not just on one level. Military intervention, yes. Mm -hmm. Intelligence sharing, yes. Cutting off financial support, yes. Ideological battles, too. Let me interrupt you for a second, because that is one of the things I was reading about the other day in an article, that apparently there is a huge amount of money going to them at the moment. Mm -hmm. That's true. So how do you get rid of the money? Well, you, I mean, yeah, there are various different ways in which you can cut off the, the financial support. I mean, you have to work out, you know, who's giving them the money. There are people within countries like Qatar and Saudi yeah. Arabia, they're giving money. So, again, you have to put pressure on the governments to try and stop that, those sources of funding. If there's money coming from other means, again... I'm not an expert on how you stop the flow of money, but it can happen. It has happened. Well, isn't, this, isn't, this, isn't the worry with, with Turkey at the moment? Isn't there some sort of collusion there as well? And they're being funded by the Turkish government? There was certainly yeah, yeah, there was a Turkish ISIS I think the first mm. investigation surely has to be, where is the money coming from? Because mm. I don't think anyone's absolutely certain where the money's coming from and, and how they're being funded entirely. And once you find that, you cut it at the source, surely. Yeah. And also, going back to bin Laden, I mean, nowadays, you don't need to have sophisticated ways of radicalising people. What you need is an internet connection. Yeah. He makes a video, he urges his followers to you know, cut off the head of a few infidels, and then that will influence somebody who is simply watching an online video to go and carry out the deed. Now, again, you have to also ensure that such videos are taken off. Yeah. You have to ensure that there's monitoring very carefully of any internet site that's, that's going to encourage um, such, mm. such action. So that's another level at which you have to deal with this. But we've already heard that there are young, in this country, young Muslim men, their parents are very worried about it, who are looking at the internet and seeing these sort of messages. And if Osama bin Laden as a young man, sends these messages on the internet, then that's going to make it even worse, isn't it? Exactly. So hence, you know, you need to, you need to strike a balance between freedom of expression, but very clearly in a case like this, stopping a clear incitement to violence. Well, um, but how is it possible to stop it? That's the question. Well, they're very sophisticated. And, and even it's Hamza, isn't it, his son? Hamza bin Laden, I believe. He uses the same kind of rhetoric. He sounds like his father. I mean, he's been trained, so it's very calculated. You should have wondered. You should have wondered who's behind it all. Well, quite, I mean, there was an strings. FBI agent mm. that was involved in the actual assassination of Osama bin Laden. Spoke about his son Hamza and said, at nine years old, this kid was public speaking. Mm. You know, this lad has not just suddenly he's taken him. Oh, well, this is his son. He has been moulded and shaped for this role. So mm. it's one thing to say to stop it but it's so planned and i imagine there's people waiting to replace other people all down the line i don't know how you stop it because it, it's, it's a long so battle that's the point yes, it's, a, it's exactly. a long war and we're going to be talking about this in decades um, there is no quick fix and i don't think anybody would argue that there is but this is a very very long-term battle that has sure. to be won and at the moment i don't think we're winning it because I don't, I don't think we're going about it in the right way. I really don't. I mean, well, that's, that's the whole point. I mean, it, it's a very depressing point, but, I mean, it does mean that people sit... We could well be sitting around in London and, and worrying ourselves sick because of this sort of thing happening. Well, I actually, last week, I shared a personal story on my own Facebook page that shows people that it's not all radical Islam. There's a, mm. a Muslim neighbour of mine brought some bread to my house. My wife answered the door. There he was, standing with bread. Apparently, the local kosher bakery had given it to his mosque 
as they often do when they've got bread over. The mosque gave it to him, said, here, take some home. He got home, had too much bread, knows that we've got loads of kids, and he brought it to our house. And I thought, that is how it can be and how it often is. And it's horrible to think that so much of the world thinks that just Jews and Muslims hate each other and that's it. And it's not true. Well, that's a very good way to end the discussion because our time is up, sadly. But my thanks to our guests, journalist and author Jeremy Havadi and The Voice, Jeremy Jacobs. Please do feel free to share your Jewish views with us. You can email studio at jewishviews.co.uk or you can contact us via social media. Find us on Facebook by going to facebook.com slash jewishviews or on Twitter, we are at jewishviewsuk. And don't forget, those details are on our website, jewishviews.co.uk. And now it's time for our rabbinic thought for the week. And this time it comes from Rabbi Harvey Bolovsky of Golders Green United Synagogue. In this Torah reading, there's a lot of reference to the seventh year, Shemitah. Every seventh year in the agricultural cycle in the land of Israel, the land was left unworked, not just to allow the land to recover and to allow the farmers to concentrate on other pursuits such as learning and studying the Torah, but also primarily to recognize Kili Ho'oretz, as the verse says, that the land belongs to me. A recognition that everything in the world really belongs to God. And by not working it, we can express that recognition. Following the seventh year, we learn about the Yovel, the Jubilee year, which occurred every 50th year. In fact, the word Jubilee comes from the word Yovel in Hebrew. In that year, not only did the land lie fallow again, it would have been two consecutive years, But also, slaves, such as they were in ancient times, went free, and land reverted to their original owners. Now, sadly, it hasn't been possible to observe the Oval since the destruction of the first temple um, thousands of years ago, for technical reasons. But the concepts are still relevant today. The idea that once in a while there should be a great reset, whether it's a conceptual reset, whether it's an election, whether it's a way of rethinking all the values by which we live in order to set things right, to redistribute property, to iron out inequities in society, and to think not just of those who are advantaged, but those who are disadvantaged. It's fascinating that the mystical sources understand the Yeovil to represent not just an important reset in the physical world, but a recognition that some in many, many thousands of years, there's a need for some spiritual reset as well. And although we seem very far from it, when we read the text about the Yeovil, I think we can focus on the idea that we in the physical world, and perhaps in our aspirations and ultimately in God's spiritual world, need from time to time a great reset to ensure we're on Thank the Thank right you path. so much to Rabbi Harvey Belovsky of Golders Green United Synagogue with our thought for the week. And that's all the Jewish views we have time for. Thanks to our guests, American correspondent Dr. Lenny Crystal, Zoe Chargett from the Sobel Centre, artist Tracy Conway, and thanks to our other contributors, and of course, very much to you at home for listening. And we mustn't forget the team, including our producers, Adam Bradley, Sue Greenberg, and Tony Honigberg. You can always listen to the most recent edition of The Jewish Views by visiting our website, jewishviews.co.uk where you'll also find the link to listen to all previous episodes as well. The Jewish Views is brought to you in association with the Jewish News and is part recorded at the studios of Jewish Care in London. 
I'm Clive Roslin. Do make sure you join us next time here on The Jewish Views. Goodbye.